Josh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for coming. What I'd love to do is just have you guys introduce yourselves. I think um, as much as I think your podcast has like, is just like incredibly informational and just educational, uh, it's probably like one standard, one deviation north of the kind of information people will be coming to my podcast for, whereas I'll look to your podcast as like really in-depth educational breakdowns of the actual literature, which I think you guys do as good as anybody, frankly. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of cool. Cause I bet there are a lot of people listening to this podcast that don't yet know who you guys are and, and absolutely should. So whoever, one of you guys can take that and run with it. You guys oh, can do a, a solo intro, each of you guys, but just introduce yourselves, tell people what you do. Uh, you guys have a podcast, just kind of give everybody a little introduction here. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. And, uh, as you said, we like to get pretty nerdy, but hopefully we can convince you that we can kind of communicate some of our ideas and actually make them practical. So that, I guess that'll be our goal today. Uh, but yeah, Zach and I are both co-own a company called Data Driven Strength. Uh, we offer coaching services, programming services, educational services, and that's that's ultimately what we do. We're more on the strength side of things, but I'd say luckily for this audience that I know is probably more on the hypertrophy body composition side of things, we take a very muscle-centric um, kind of point of view towards strength. So uh, there's a lot of overlap with, even if most of our clientele is on the powerlifting side of things, there's obviously a ton of overlap. So that's kind of what we do within, within industry. And then we also are researchers um, at Florida Atlantic University. We both uh, do research in the area of strength and hypertrophy. So we're lucky to have a ton of overlap with the stuff we do within data-driven strength, as well as the research um, that we conduct. In, and we're often in the lab collecting data with our colleagues, designing studies. And also um, we have some meta-analyses in the, in the works that are relevant to some of the stuff we'll talk about today. So Luckily, everything kind of overlaps a lot, but we have a lot of kind of fires going right now. Um, so it's sometimes a challenge to to uh, kind of make sure everything's being taken care of. But um, yeah, we're lucky to do it. And this whole data-driven strength thing just kind of naturally evolved throughout grad school. And um, we're both in our PhD programs right now. Zach, I, would it be fair to say you're on the tail end of yours? I guess on paper. <laughs> yeah, on, on paper is on the tail end. I'm I'm more on the front end, but uh, nonetheless, we'll we're 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 both grad students. So we're both working on our PhDs right now. Did you guys? I've I I think that I'm I'm again in my, my my experience might not be everybody's, but I found you guys obviously as a slightly more on the hypertrophy side of things when when the topic of your podcasts blended or, or trended in that direction. And so I, I look back at a lot of your, I was like, let me go listen to a bunch of these guys' podcasts. And it did turn out there was a lot of like strength-driven stuff. Was there a moment, is that your your guys' background in terms of your individual pursuits into powerlifting um, and as well as coaching? And at one point where you're like, okay, like we're also interested in taking some of this stuff in and assessing it in a hypertrophy context. I'd say from like a, like a more specific point of view, the thing that kind of got things rolling for us was very specific. It was proximity to failure for strength. Um, I think we had a perspective on that that was a little bit different than the average perspective within the evidence-based community. And we we kind of tried to, to shed some light on that. And that's what I think kind of got the ball rolling from us or, or for us, right? And I said that it was proximity to failure for strength specifically and that also aligned with our coaching practices on the, the, the powerlifting side of things at the time. I, but since then, we we still talk about that topic. We were actively doing research in that area and, and, and we're very interested in it. However, we have strategically made sure that's not the only thing we talk about. 
Um, so from a personal perspective, from a clientele perspective, a lot of what we do is both strength and hypertrophy. I'd say like the average client that I work with, and, and I imagine Zach is the same, has both strength and hypertrophy goals. Um, but we have tried to kind of widen our scope a little bit from this little specific area of proximity to failure for strength and just trying to bridge that gap between the scientific research and actually, you know, applying it in practice and, and individualizing it, et cetera. Yeah. You, you guys do a great job at, at that. I think it, you kind of tongue in cheek. We're like, I hope that we're going to be able to, you know, prove that we can also articulate things to, you know, actually boots on the ground people like who maybe not, you know, super literate in terms of actually reading literature, but you guys do an awesome job at that. So let's be real. You guys, it's like a ton of practical take homes. It's not like some white coat, like nobody can understand what the hell you guys are talking about. Like you guys do a really good job at that. Um, and so obviously that's why, yeah, and that's obviously why I have you guys here. I, I'm not, I don't, you know, I've had, I've had incredibly intellectual people on here that have occasionally kind of gone uh, a little bit into like kind of flexing that and, and missed the plot a little bit. And, and for the most part, I've learned from that as well. So I'll stop you guys if I feel like we're using any rhetoric or words, words, verbiage that we want to kind of backtrack and define first, but I suspect that we'll be good to go. Um, I don't know exactly what the name of this podcast will be, but you guys had a podcast titled, uh, what was it titled? Wrinkles to the volume discussion for muscle something. It's cutting off here. Muscle growth, I bet. Um, and recently I gave a talk at a seminar and the topic was uh, evidence for a minimum effective dose of hypertrophy, kind of just like a, the case for a minimalist approach and what we do and don't know. And uh, as I was, you know, building the deck for that, as I was doing some research for that, it, it came yeah, I mean, it was pretty something that I intuitively understood for a while, but actually going through and rereading with a specific eye on this topic, um, both of the meta-analysis that you guys, uh, what we're going to talk about today, became very clear to me that even an attempt to answer this question just has so many limitations. And as much as I wanted to give people very concrete takeaways, it, it ended up being a discussion of like, hey, I'm going to do my best here, but take everything with such a huge grain of salt, given all of these factors both from what we see in the literature, but also of all of the moving parts that take place in getting a hypertrophy stimulus. Um, and so again, you guys had a great podcast and expressed a lot of those same things. And when I was listening to it, like it's actually really funny. On the plane to, it was in Vegas. On the plane to Vegas, I saw the podcast come out and I was like, I love you. I love the podcast. Love that you guys look at the literature. And I did not listen to it because I was so nervous that you guys were going to throw a wrinkle into something I said. I looked at my fiance and I was like, fuck, I really want to listen to this. It's like right up my alley. But if they say some shit, I got to just get through these two days and then I'll listen to it. And so I on the plane home, I listened to it and I was like, I punched my fiance. I was like, they're fucking crushing it. We were like so totally on the same page. Um, and so that, that was just a funny moment. I was like, please don't blow it for me. You guys like totally say the opposite thing. I get up there and totally botch it. But anyway, um, I'd love for you guys take it away uh, to start with just a whatever semi-quick, we can go off on tangents, whatever, breakdown of the, these two meta-analyses, these two, I would say, most cited pieces of, of, of research. Um, and we'll tr and just kind of we'll do like an overview of the study itself. But we'll talk about like what we can and can't deduce based on that what sort of a framework of a dose response relationship between volume we, we can or can't say that there is. Um, and then we'll kind of trend into these limitations of, of just attempting to even give volume recommendations as a number of hard sets in general. So I know that's a lot. Let's just start with like, what are these two papers and combining them kind of what generally do we see and what level of certainty can we even say that with? Go for it, Josh, your newsletter. Yeah, so... I guess from a high level, I'll start by saying I really like this topic because although it is specific to volume, I think 
a lot of the kind of point of view we'll have in terms of its application is relevant to everything and is relevant to all research and how you apply it to practice. So ultimately, I think that we, we can have recommendations, right, from the research. And that's that's awesome, right? Obviously, we should have that in there. Yeah, people should definitely be making those recommendations. But we we don't like to make those recommendations quite as much, right? Like, I'm, I'm glad that people do make recommendations and people should make recommendations, but we choose to hopefully provide a slightly different perspective on said recommendations. So if we circle back to proximity to failure, it's it's common to hear, hey, you should probably train with like one to three reps in reserve on, uh, yeah, train with one to three reps in reserves to, ma to maximize hypertrophy. Awesome recommendation. However, our kind of perspective um, for both strength and hypertrophy is, Yes, again, potentially helpful recommendation, but there's a lot more that goes into it. And where we would prefer to come at these types of questions is understanding the nature of the relationship of that training volume, uh, of that training variable and the outcome of interest. So instead of saying one to three reps in reserve, what we're more interested in is what is the relationship between training closer to failure and muscle growth? Similarly, what is the relationship between uh, training closer to failure and strength? Right? Is it exponent? Does it exponentially in increase? Does it linearly increase? Do you see diminishing returns? Is it completely flat where there's literally no return as you get closer to failure? Um, and and we have some some stuff in the work specifically on proximity to failure, starting to transition that more into volume as well. So I'm not necessarily going to be able to say exactly what that that relationship is today, but um, we can at least point out some of the limitations of just giving that general. 10 to 20 set per week recommendation, which again is good, but might leave a little bit to be desired when you kind of get down this individualization rabbit hole and you start to think about the complexities that go into program design on an individual level. Uh, but to briefly go over the two meta-analyses that you mentioned, uh, Jordan, the first is from 2017, which is from Schoenfeld and colleagues, which if you've only read one you know, research paper, in the area of strength and hypertrophy, it's probably this one because it's, it's probably the, one of the best cited, if not the best cited, and it's an awesome meta-analysis. Um, and, and essentially they compared less than five sets per muscle group per week, five to nine sets per muscle group per week, and 10 plus uh, sets per muscle group per week. And they effectively saw this dose-response relationship all the way up, right? Um, that is one of, I believe, three actual statistical analyses that they did. Um, and I think some people take that specific meta-analysis um, because if you look at what's called an effect size, which just to, it's, it's just a fancy way to kind of look at how effective one of those buckets was in producing the outcome of interest, in this case, muscle growth or hypertrophy. Um, you see that the effect size is like, I want to say it's like 60 to 70% for less than five sets per week compared to five to nine sets per week. So some people will take that and say, oh, you see diminishing returns with additional sets, which might be true, but there's a, a, a pretty big limitation with just bucketing uh, those different categories, right? Um, because for example, if you had, you know, all those studies in the less than five set per week um, category or bucket, all of them were doing four or five or three or four sets, right? And then all of the next bucket of five to nine sets was doing five or six sets, right? Are you actually looking at 
what seems to kind of be this this linear relationship or that's how we kind of conceptualize it but instead we're just bucketing these two pretty broad categories which leaves some to be desired in terms of our interpretation so again saying, i don't want not, to go, go, ahead, go ahead yeah, yeah go, for it, go for it i don't want to cut you off but you're saying that because we those are like fairly large sizes of like the difference between doing one you know it was like one to four sets and then five to nine ten or more uh that that just bucketing them even if one to four doesn't sound like a lot and five to nine might not sound like a large bucket that just they are large enough that it it is a limitation of our our ability to deduce a relationship here yeah that's that's exactly right what you would ideally want to see is is a continuous analysis which luckily these authors also did and this one is is talked about a lot less um and so essentially a continuous analysis would be okay instead of having one to four sets five to nine sets 10 plus sets they essentially said all right how many sets did this study do in in, in or, or you know group a in, in this study group no buckets. In this study and you essentially yeah exactly no buckets continuous relationship of volume and they essentially fit it to a linear regression which is just a, a linear relationship and they saw that it was a significant fit with that linear regression uh, which basically tells us that this relationship is more or less linear so um they didn't look at other potential model fits um, to deduce if there's a uh, relationship that fits a little bit better, right? I kind of mentioned some of them earlier with proximity failure, diminishing returns as you get higher and higher in volume. Um, you know, maybe you see an exponential, right? That's that most people. But, it, but it was kind of close. It was kind of close to linear. It was. It was like it, it was. It was close to linear, right? Um, so the the point I'm making is. We see that more sets are generally better, but we can't say a ton about the exact nature of that relationship from the Schoenfeld paper. Um, and then that leads to the a more recent meta-analysis, which at this point I think is also pretty well cited, and that's by Bezval and colleagues. And they did a similar thing where they broke it up between, um, I believe it was 12 to 20 sets per week as like a moderate volume bucket, and then 20 plus sets per week. So similar limitations there in terms of these pretty wide buckets and thus being unable to actually tell um, what the nature of the relationship is. Um, now to kind of, I'm kind of making the case for these continuous analyses, right? However, and this was a big part of, of the newsletter we're kind of referring to here is that even if you do do a continuous analysis, we know that there's a lot of things that influence the potential effectiveness of a given set. Things like how close to failure you're, you're training, things like the rest periods you're using, potentially the muscle group. Um, what else? There's definitely a lot more that, that I'm kind of missing, but, um, you know, uh, the, the actual exercise, right? Is it a high bar squat? Is it a leg extension? That sort of thing. So to some degree, we're just saying like, there's a lot more to learn. <laughs> there's a lot more to understand about the nature of this relationship. And we should... We can definitely say 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week as a starting point, but we shouldn't be afraid to stray from that considerably with this kind of, I guess, I don't want to say where we completely, you know, are pointing out these limitations, but um, with potentially some of the listeners that weren't aware of these limitations, now they can realize that um, there's a lot of, of things to additionally consider with both the statistical analyses and within the research as well as all of these additional factors that later on that might influence optimal volumes when, when you know, with boots on the ground in practice. 
would you guys say that we have kind of a twofold, not problem, but a two, it's, it's a twofold question when it comes to actually ending up giving the most helpful recommendation. And that's number one is what does this relationship look like if we're, if we're graphing it? Like you said, is it linear? Is it exponential? Is it diminishing returns? Is it flat line? Or I don't know the term you used, but I know I get what you mean. Is it a straight line? Is there, does it not matter, I guess, essentially? Um, and then the second thing is putting numbers on that graph. It's like, okay, it's like one thing to understand it conceptually, where it's like, all right, is it exponential? Is it, is it getting exponentially more with more volume? Are we getting exponentially better gains? Are we getting diminished return gains? Is it linear? And then the second thing people care about, it's like, okay, like I understand this general concept, but people are like, let's put some numbers on this bitch. You know, like people want some form of a number. And so if you guys had to start with that first part where it's like, hey, what is the relationship? Very generally, I got an X and Y axis, blank slate. I'm graphing this out. What are we, what are, what would you say that that ends up looking like? I know that, level of certainty with which we can say that is is up for debate but i'd be curious what your guys intuition is in terms of just generally what the shape of that graph would look like yeah 100 um, i'll take this first and josh see if i'm off base um the way that i think you can think about these questions is kind of thinking um in extremes that's that's kind of the way that i like to think about this question to start so from the available data that we have we can say the middle of this relationship seems to be relatively strong. So, you know, that relatively explored relationship from the Schoenfeld meta-analysis somewhere between, you know, one and 10 sets seems to be a pretty strong linear relationship for the most part. The question becomes first, is it possible to do too much volume? And are there bad outcomes when we do that? We have a few papers that do, you know, pretty crazy protocols like German volume training, stuff like that, that sometimes even show muscle loss, I think, if there's very excessive volumes. So the point being there, it's probably possible to do too much. We don't necessarily know that from the actual meta-analytic, you know, investigation of that relationship like we just talked about. But purely from a conceptual perspective, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the example of like identifying like a black goose. If there's literally one, you know that it, it can exist and the same kind of thing here. If it is literally possible to do too much volume, that's probably something to consider on an actual practical perspective. And then alternatively, is it possible to do way too little? And whether that's from, you know, the research showing that there is a pretty good relationship initially, or just from our practical experience of dealing with clients and realizing that, you know, in our experience, particularly one example that comes to mind of is the bench press, trying to get someone to progress their bench press or just the, the upper body musculature associated with that. Um, it can be pretty challenging if, if, if you're doing a very, very low amount of work. And often that is benefited by increasing the amount of work that you're doing. Um, so that's an example where it's possible to do considerably too little. And so if we identify both of those kind of ends of the relationship, you can at least somewhat see, and this has been proposed of the kind of the inverted U relationship where the, the meat of that relationship seems to be probably pretty linear. And that's probably kind of the ascending limb of that, that parabolic relationship that we've investigated thus far, but there's probably a point where diminishing returns come and ultimately leads to actual regression. And so from an actual practical perspective to kind of answer your second question of, okay, great. That's, that sounds awesome. That's what the shape looks like, but that means nothing to me without some actual numbers on the paper. That's where I think our perspective is going to be less about assigning numbers to that graph, but more about discussing strategies to figure out where on that graph that you are. I think that is probably from a practical perspective, the most thing to take the, the probably the best thing to take away is that the actual literature can tell us when we 
count volume a very specific way. When we perform certain exercises that have been investigated at a certain proximity to failure for a certain study duration length, like all these little things that actually have been directly investigated. When we do those volumes, that seems to optimize outcomes. And that's probably a decent starting point. But after that, it really almost entirely becomes about discussing strategies and methods to actually figure out where on that parabolic relationship an individual is so that you can kind of go on over time and navigate. Because as Josh said, we really just lack a lot of evidence to be able to say very concretely what the what the relationship looks like on the group level. Thus, for the individual level, we need to take into some of these other practical considerations to make sure that we're actually able to adjust things over time. And we're not just sitting in this 10 to 20 set per week range, despite this individual maybe benefiting from considerably on either end of that spectrum outside of the range. If we were to let our intuition kind of guide us and use some of the tools that I'm sure we'll discuss next. So I think I'm probably not going to answer the second question is, is kind of my, my trick, my trick uh, answer there is just because I don't even know if that's useful. And we were kind of talking before we got started about um, Brian Borsey made a, made a post recently kind of discussing this concept is like, how useful is this 10 to 20 set recommendation um, due to the way that volumes counted and things like that. And to me, ultimately it doesn't really matter like that. It, it is a limitation in the sense that we can't relate it to what we do in the gym, but really it's just, it's just a starting point. That, that is what it is. That is how volume is um, calculated. That's how volume is currently being measured. And so that can just be something that you can utilize to, to realize where we should probably start. And then from there, these other strategies um, can kind of move us uh, along that relationship. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of my perspective. I don't know what you guys think. Josh, I'll let you jump in if you want to before I'll, I'll do a quick recap there. Before, man, I think that was spot on. Yeah, so do I. And I think I like the idea of, all right, just zooming out and acknowledging that on this graph, it 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 starts with the idea that it's possible to do too little and it and it ends with the idea that it's possible to do too much. So in between those two points, we also have some inkling that on some part between those two points, that graph goes up, which means at some point it must come down as well. And so... Does that graph look like a perfect U? Is it like, again, I would butcher any like more correct terms, but how how long is that ascending part of it? How long is it kind of flatline? When does it come down? What's the slope of it coming down? Like all of that is cool to discuss intellectually, but I think more an understanding of like, hey, it's possible you're not doing enough to grow at all or maximally. It's possible that you're doing more than you need to such that it's inefficient and potentially such that you're, you're you know, regressing, getting worse gains, not recovering, overreaching, overtraining, whatever. Um, and in between those two points, it's about figuring out using certain proxies, what's best for you um, and how to know it's enough. And I, and I can't escape the, I can't escape something like, and so you said, okay, so 10, I know Brian, you know, I'm not sure, I don't exactly remember the verbiage in, in his post, but like, not that like 10 to 20 is literally useful, but it's as useful as the level of certainty with which you use it. It's as, yeah. it's, it's only useful how you're using it. It's useful if you're like, hey, super freaking general ballpark starting place, mm -hmm. such that I can layer on top of this kind of metrics and proxies for is this good and, and how to change things over time. And I, I can't escape the, it being analogous to setting calories. Um, because we just, you know, it, 10 to 20 just is a laughably large range that I think if like, it just, that should set off a signal in your brain that like, even if you were gonna try and tell me that 10 to 20 
is factually where we get our best gains. Like it's almost an oxymoron because it's such a wide range in and of itself. Um, and then from a like it being analogous to calories, it's like the, a big problem I see with people just whatever, trying to deduce their TDEE or set calories for a deficit or whatever is the level of certainty with which they run with the calorie calculator or something. Um, level of certainty with which they believe that they are tracking what they say they're tracking or eating what they say they're eating. And so if you look like a calorie calculation is helpful as a starting point, and it's only helpful insofar as getting you to get started and then track something and make assessments and make changes. And I and I feel like that's something that people are like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I totally get that. But when it comes to volume, they're like, no, 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 we, we know about this. And it's like, well, this this range is wide as shit. Like, we, like should tell you we're, we're not really all that sure. Like we're sure within a fucking, it's either 10 or double 10. Like it should just, it should just set off an alarm of like, yeah, if I told you you're going to eat 1,000 to 2,000 calories, you know, like you should probably be like, yeah, we don't really know for sure. Um, and so I agree with you guys. It's not, it's not entirely useful. It's not like giving guidelines is a waste of time. It's just, it needs an, uh, it needs like a, like a subtitle underneath it to like describe how we're going to go ahead and use that. Um, I, I'd be curious to, to circle back around and look at these studies because I, um, Josh he said something earlier. He's like, if you've only read one study in, in your interest in hypertrophy, it's probably this one. And for this was the first paper I ever read the full text on ever, um, six, six years ago, I guess now. And, uh, I've read it many times since and, uh, have taken something different from it each time. I think the first time I read it, I was like, great, 10 to 20. That's it. Everyone 10 to 20, you shrivel up into a raisin. If you do nine, you overtrain if you do 21 and that's it. Um, and since then, obviously been able to deduce a lot more, but I think one of the, like, what are some of the things that this paper does and, and uh, that end up making 10 to 20 kind of a bit muddy in terms of application, maybe like a misunderstanding of how the study calculated volume and, and, and how does that end up tripping people up in application when it comes to programming for people? There's, there's multiple things here. And one of the things that you mentioned, I'll, I'll kind of circle back to is regarding how volume is actually quantified. Um, but I think the first thing to recognize just from a high level with volume and other training variables is that research is a lot different from actual training. Um, there, there's, there's a few reasons for that. The first is that the actual training protocols probably look a lot different than what people are doing in practice. Maybe you're doing a within subjects design and they're literally just doing unilateral bicep curls. Maybe it's even on like a, like a, a, a dynamometer type of setup or something that's not traditional strength training, but, um, the, the actual protocols are, are typically different. And importantly, the studies are often kind of biased or the protocols are actually biased towards the, the, uh, muscles and or movements that are being measured. So if it's a bench press strength study, they're probably going to be doing a lot of bench press, but maybe not a, a lot of overhead press, if any. But if you have a client that's interested in bench press strength and overhead press strength, oh, and maybe squat and deadlift, then things look a lot different when you kind of consider the overall practicality of the training program, um, volume tolerance, et cetera. Um, and then another kind of big hitter is that the studies are short term, right? Um what is optimal in say an eight week training study or a 10 week training study, which is probably the average that might be different than what's optimal on a longer time scale, or maybe even what's sustainable on a longer time scale. 
Um, so those are those are the big things. Another one that comes to mind is that um, you can't individualize exercise selection in in research, right? Like if you have people doing bench press and you're measuring chest hypertrophy, and this you 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 have a, a subject that's like I literally do not feel anything in my pecs. It's all the soreness is in my shoulders and my triceps. You can't just put them on a chest press machine that fits them really well because you know, that that's a strength of research and that it's super controlled, but that's also can be a double-edged sword when you think about applying these numbers rigorous, rigorously. And that's again, why my biggest kind of take on that I would, I would encourage is think about research, giving you an understanding of the general nature of a relationship. Um, we still have a lot more to learn as opposed to these, these specific numbers. And then Jordan, you also mentioned how uh, volume is quantified. Um, and a lot of times in the research, a, something like a bicep curl would count the same as something like a cable row for the biceps, which honestly, from a research-based perspective is probably the best call right now, but we don't have a ton of research on it. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is kind of an area of research in terms of essentially how well things like rows or lat pulldowns grow the biceps. If that would be something that like eventually we're like, yeah, the bros were right. Most people in practice that kind of notice that like, hey, a bicep curl is going to grow the biceps more than a cable row. Um, that, that seems to be the case. But again, if you're creating methods for uh, a meta-analysis, you kind of need to go with what the most evidence-based choice is. And I think that is the most evidence-based choice, at least right now. Um, but again, in practice, we might differ from that a little bit. So if you take 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week as your starting point, but you don't count cable rows or lat pulldowns into that, and you just think about bicep curls for, for biceps, that's actually, that starting point is a lot different than what, again, our quote-unquote evidence-based starting point is. Um, our hope is to, and, and what we're kind of working on right now, is to give people the tools to look at this relationship in all of these different scenarios. So if you count these quote-unquote indirect sets, again, our example being uh, how well the biceps grow from cable rows, whether you include these indirect sets or you don't include these indirect sets or you count them as say half of a set, which has also been proposed in the research. Um, so again, more kind of layers to the uncertainty and more things to keep in mind um, when putting all this stuff into practice. Yeah, so what you're basically saying is that in the research when there's a calculation for like a compound lift uh, that it's counting for basically all synergist muscles or at least like primary, secondary, which is a bit uh, not maybe the best description, but something like a pull-up would count equally for back, air quotes, back, which is a ton of muscles. We got people are fucking losing their shit over what division of the iliac lat is, you know? And so the fact that we're lumping everything into back should already kind of make you look at this with a huge grain of salt. But what we're saying is that compound lifts counted for more than one thing equally. And they tend to do that in most of the studies. And that's almost not even something we're critiquing of the studies because... The way I, like you said, not only is it probably of all the options, the most evidence-based, it's it's also probably the easiest. And in some ways, I think the most practical for doing larger scale research. And you guys are a lot closer to that than I am. So if that's intuition is wrong, but I just, I feel like if you're not gonna count it as one-to-one, -one, don't count it at all. I feel like something in between there gets really muddy. And the fact that a lot of the research is on, not all, but a lot in the Schoenfeld study was almost exclusively on non-untrained uh, uh, population. That one-to-one -one probably checks out a little bit more for somebody who's untrained. I'd, I'd bet that somebody, I bet that that 
diverges with training age and and as you gain more muscle that the oh, cable row will have a profound enough hypertrophy stimulus to continue to grow your biceps forever. But probably in the beginning, we're just seeing that that threshold for growth be so low that maybe that actually pull-ups versus bicep curls probably similar in the sense that they're both above that threshold at least. Um, but I think that that's, I just going to sit on that point for one second. We've made it on the podcast before. It's like, if you guys are taking, and I say this, I just, I run a group program. We train for hypertrophy. Somebody will inevitably at the start of every program come in and say, hey, this is low volume. I say, okay, like how much volume do you think you need? And they're like, uh, 10 to 20. And I'm like, okay, based on that study, you're doing 20 sets of biceps, you know? And so I'm not saying that, that we're going to use that metric, but I, all I'm saying is that not to lose that as a general guideline whatsoever, but to just, just understand that that's how that was counted. I mean, leg presses in the Schoenfeld study counted for fucking hamstrings, you know? And so there's just, it's just, it's fine if it's a starting place, but we want to understand how these um, different variables, particularly proximity to failure, muscle length, resistance profile, all change the amount of stimulus you get. And it's not even something you need to be so particular about. I think, you know, the point you guys are kind of making is understanding this more from a general understanding, philosophically, how these variables interact, just understanding to take all of that with a grain of salt and then be able to assess whether or not something working is working is way more important than like, I'm doing X amount of sets and that violates some unspoken rule. I really, really, I've never heard it before. I really like the calorie analogy. Um, I think that is a very good thing to map onto this. Like you said, that people intuitively really understand that I wrote some notes down. Josh might've already said some of these, but I'm going to say them anyway, because I think it, I think it hammers this home. Like the calorie analogy, like you said, from a broad scale perspective, like there is a number of calories to elicit the desired outcome. But within that, there's all of these sub things that we have to keep in mind that ultimately um, influence the sustainability of the calorie target, the ability for an individual to have a um, long-term success with that based on their own preferences. So here are just like a few things I jotted down that are like kind of synonymous between this and the volume discussion. Um, like I said, from the behavioral aspect, a very, very, very large calorie deficit is obviously less sustainable than a more moderate calorie deficit for a lot of people. Same thing with the volumes. You may be able to sustain, you know, greater than 20 sets per week, like in the uh, Bosval meta-analysis for a six to 10 week intervention period, but saying that's a long-term strategy that I don't think people often consider is these studies are, like I said, from somewhere, generally speaking, six to 12 weeks. We're not talking that every single week of your entire training career to perform the same amount of volume. We just simply don't have data on that to, to say that that's the case. So sustainability is something you have to take into account there. Um, another thing I wrote down is like food quality and how that kind of influences satiety. Very similar to that is kind of how exercise selection plays into there. Um, depending on the exercise selection is going to influence how quote unquote full or how much fatigue a set delivers. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. You're doing 10 sets of high bar squats to two RER versus 10 sets of leg extensions to two RER, whether that's due to the absolute load, whether that's due to the exposure to a longer muscle length, there's a ton of reasons that probably go into why we experience different fatigue levels from different exercises. But based on anecdote, that definitely is something that plays in, uh, dietary preference was another thing I wrote down. So some people, you know, really don't like to eat a ton of carbohydrates. They like to eat a ton of fat or they like to have a ton of protein. To me, that's very similar to the proximity to failure discussion here. If you have somebody who just 
I'm taking every set to failure. And that's how it is. It's not even up for discussion. Their volume is going to reflect that. And the same thing for somebody who likes to, you know, have maybe more of the RIR progression model. We were kind of working farther from failure early in a, in a block or a training cycle. And that kind of progressively comes down. That's just a different preference on how to kind of get at a similar thing. And so that is probably also going to change the, the volume that you're ultimately handling to, to, to reach your outcomes. And then another thing was just like, calorie allocation. So like some people like to have additional calories on the weekend. Um, and I view that similar to kind of the progression preference. So, you know, some people really like to add sets throughout a mesocycle. Some people like to, you know, keep that more static, whatever that is, those preferences are ultimately going to influence the weekly sets that you're performing. Whereas in one example, 15 is kind of what I handle every single week. Whereas in the other, if I'm working my way up to 25, maybe additionally, I'm going to bring that down a little bit to kind of compensate. So ultimately, I think the calorie analogy is very, very good here. And you can do that for a ton more stuff that I didn't even mention. But ultimately, really, we're trying to find this quote unquote calorie budget for, for volume, but there's all these things that go into it. And it's an, it's the 10 to 20 thing is basically like saying the American diet should be 2000 calories or whatever, right? Like that's kind of that general budget that just gets thrown out there. And, and to some degree, that 10 to 20 set recommendation is very similar. A 2000 calorie diet may for a lot of people not lead to obesity, but for some people that may not be the case. And, and all the other things you mentioned, um, sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking of all these connections. It's a very, very good analogy. I've never heard of this. Um, the thing you mentioned about not being able to, um, not, not necessarily to say you don't have good effort in trying to track your calories appropriately, but that's very similar to RR accuracy. You may be saying that you're training to failure when in reality you're not. So you're training 30 sets per week and you're saying you're training to failure, but in reality you are six reps shy of failure in every single set. That is why you are potentially able to train with volumes outside of the general recommendation. So there's all these things that I think um, mirror that discussion a lot and kind of determining these volumes, which was why I kind of come back to what I think is probably more important is figuring out those strategies to figure where you are at on your own individual kind of inverted U relationship due to all that noise that's created in the system when we're trying to extract actual numeric recommendations, um, which obviously from somebody who's listening to this and wants to know what to put on their training log for Monday, that's a little bit hard to, to decipher, but hopefully we can kind of talk about some of those strategies to figure out uh, where you're going to be. Um, and obviously the, the 10 to 20 set recommendation is there for a reason. I still think that's a really good starting point. I just think it should be viewed as such. I'm, I'm curious, um, how you, it, how slash if you guys, and I ask this to coaches who are evidence-based, you know, whatever, like how slash if you even use that recommendation at all ever, um, like, is it, I get asked that question a lot. And then I just think. I'll be blunt with you guys. Like I'm not building programs and while I'm building it on the graph somewhere, like marking off back one set, back this set, lats, that set, biceps, that set. And so it's, I'll say it's not something I'm using while I'm programming. And I will say big caveat is for me, optimal volume for maximum growth just isn't even relevant for 99% of the people I'm working with because what ends up being more relevant is maximizing the limited amount of time that they have, getting them the most volume with a whole layer of personal preference. And I find that to be like optimal volume is uh, is whatever, it's intellectually stimulating to talk about, but like to do optimal volume, we're, we're talking about a, a, a likely a greater time commitment than most people can handle. And so it, it, it's a bit of a moot point. It's more of like, hey, I can only train three or four days per week. Like 
optimal volume be damned, we need to just make sure that there's enough here for me to grow and recover from and that I enjoy. And so I'm curious for you guys, I don't know if you do a ton of hypertrophy specific programming or if you're working mostly with powerlifting clientele, but are you, even even with powerlifting, I guess, whatever, like are you, are you tracking volume kind of, I would say proactively in that way? Like I might write a program and maybe like, retroactively, if I'm interested in what, what the volume numbers come to, I might be, and almost always falls into like, this is good enough to get started. Let's see how it goes. But are you guys actually like proactively using a 10 to 20 guideline as you're making a program? I'll plug this quick and I'll let Josh go. Cause I just spoke for a long time, but I thought of another dietary reference for this and I just got to keep it going. If you're talking um, protein intake, thermic effective food, that's the one I was going to go with where it's like no, 2000 calories, but, but super high protein or super low proteins, like different net calories for sure. But similar, similar yeah. to me, if you've ever tracked macros, it's kind of impossible not to have some of those habits. So I think somebody from our perspective, who's you know, probably made more spreadsheets than than we should have in our lifetime calculating optimal volumes because the research says so, et cetera, before we knew better. Um, I think it's kind of impossible to some degree to not have like what what I would put on paper as kind of a standard session without calculating volumes is probably going to be somewhere close to that, uh, if that makes sense. Um, I absolutely do not kind of calculate sets as I'm going kind of thing. I might take a look at it roughly like after I've done uh, kind of a, a microcycle or, or something like that for what I think is appropriate for the individual and use that as just kind of a sanity check. But I I don't know. I'm curious what Josh says on this because to me it does, but I was gonna say you're using that within individual though. So at the end of the day, you're like, I'm not taking the number, like I might, let's say between macro cycles or mesocycles or whatever, I might be like, all right, we were doing X amount of sets of this. I'm not even comparing that to 10 to 20. I'm comparing yeah. it to how you did and and what we yeah. want to do in the next one. It's just, it's the yeah. same going, literally you could do the calorie analogy all day. It's the same thing when people are like, oh, I'm eating X calories and, and I should be getting Y outcome. Yeah. Instead of saying, I, I am getting X, I am doing X and I'm getting Z outcome. And what do I do now with that information? Where like, instead of this, like I should based on this literature, I should based on this calorie calculator, it's like more of like within the individual what's happening, making changes that I, I will yeah. count in that regard to say, hey, yeah. and I might not even count. I might be like, we're gonna add an extra set here, you know, like, yeah, cause yeah, you exactly. can handle yeah. slash recover slash would benefit from that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's basically what I'm saying. Like when I get a new client, I will occasionally like sanity check with the 10 to 20 set recommendation if I don't have much to go off of. For like a power lifter, sometimes I'll kind of think about that conceptually for like biceps, for example, if they say I want to progress my biceps, but it's not a huge priority for me. Maybe I'm sitting at the bottom end of the range somewhere a little bit less than 10 sets per week, something like that, just to conceptually verify. But yeah, for the most part, I don't think I think about it a ton, but I would be, I would be remiss not to bring up the fact that I've done that a lot. And I think similar to tracking macros, it's very hard to kind of get that out of your head. Like Jordan, I would imagine, I'm not sure if you currently like track your calories very consistently, but I'm sure you have in the past. Is that accurate? Yeah. And, and so I would imagine it's kind of impossible for you to have a meal without a sufficient dose of protein, no matter what you did, you go out to eat with your friends, like you're looking at the menu. Okay. What's going to get me, you know, roughly 50 grams of protein, this meal, um, purely from a habit perspective. And that's pretty much always going to be the case for the rest of your life. I think that's going to be similar for a resistance training session. And the example that I'm just not going to write down two sets of biceps in a workout. And I'm probably not on somebody's first sheet going to write to do biceps five times a week. It's probably going to be two to three times a week. And each session's probably going to be somewhere in the three, 
three to five sets per session range there, you know what I mean? So you're yeah. kind of already there purely based on logistics. Um, so I think it's similar in that regard. Like you're not going to write up a meal plan for somebody who has, yeah, for breakfast, I had 13 grams of protein intentionally. And, uh, for breakfast, you know, I mean, for, for dinner, I, uh, you know, intentionally ate 177 grams of protein, like something like that would just never happen if you're kind of like thinking about it that way. So I think those habits and those kind of logistical constraints ultimately navigate us towards those things, even though we're not thinking about it, but Josh, let me know what you think. Yeah, so to directly answer the question, which I think is a really good one, and that Josh, kind of Josh is like, you guys, you guys danced around that shit. Oh, gonna, just, he he's like, I'm going to come and actually finally answer your question. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, I think you, I think, I think you guys, yeah, you guys danced around it a little bit, but <laughs> you were at least, you were at least talking about the concept. It, it, I, I was trying to listen to you guys, um, but I was mostly just reflecting on on what I actually do, and the only time I would use any kind of like range would be if I don't have anything to go off of for the individual. Um, and honestly, and I was again reflecting on it, if I don't have anything to go off of for the individual, that means they're probably brand new to training, which is pretty infrequent for just kind of our, our general clientele. Um, but if that is the case, my ranges aren't 10 to 20 sets for, for, a, for a new or for someone starting out. Um, like I might have them low bar squat. If they're a powerlifter, I might have them low bar squat one hard session per week and maybe just keep it at that to start right maybe that's like four to six sets maybe we have like a second day where they do a little bit lighter load something like that but i would i would never like i i'd say some of my highest volume squatters are training their quads slash a squatting pattern 18 to 20 sets per week like that's already the high high end of that range and i'm probably not going to put a, a someone brand new to the gym very early on um, but for, for most people that have kind of something to go off of, I typically just ask them what has seemed to work the best for them, what what has led to the best responses for them. Um, and oftentimes that's what they're doing right now. So you can just kind of go off of like very, like pretty recent training logs um, because most people are going to kind of end up what feels the best intuitively for them. And that's a really good starting point. And then from there, I'm not worried about whether we're at eight sets or 12 sets or 30 sets. I care about how was the response to that formulation of training and which direction should we go if it wasn't satisfactory. That's basically, that's literally my individualization process. If I'm working with someone in a one-on-one -on -one setting is I'm taking this microcycle and I'm essentially copying it. And now I'm making changes to the microcycle and the changes to that microcycle might be the, the training week itself, the dosage, the exercise selection, and then you kind of expand it out from there, right? Okay, maybe I'm kind of using like the middle of the, the training block as what I'm starting at. But now I also need to think about, okay, what are the, for a power lift with the top set progression schemes that kind of get us to feel the best we can at the end of a block? Or how are we using this block to potentiate the next block, right? So it's all about what did we just do? How did it go? Should we keep riding this wave? How's the individual doing psychologically? Do we need to change something up just to keep it fresh? Um, and then from a physiological slash training response perspective, which direction do we need to go based on their subjective feedback, previous training history, et cetera. So like Zach said, our like one-on-one -on -one coaching spreadsheets, we don't necessarily have a spot, um, to like enter proactively how many sets were being done, but reactively on the back end, we have like these pretty graphs that indicate like how many sets were completed each week. So I can look back and say, oh yeah, cycle one 
uh, when we worked together, that went really well. Let's kind of look back at the, the training volume that was done there because cycle three, it's not going quite as hot. So maybe we should push the volume back towards that really good response in cycle one. And we, we, we can easily look at that information. So it's all about those changes, in my opinion, um, kind of using previous uh, training history as a template and then adjustments from there. Yeah. And, and it just, it's the take home, I think, is that it's just, it's dealing with the individual in front of you and the feedback you're getting both from a the data that's written down is this person progressing by how much or not and how are they feeling and like that is it's really like where you're spending an inverse amount of time like the opposite of what we should be doing on setting or figuring out the perfect guideline instead of fucking get just pick something get started that makes some sense based on like you said previous whether it's calories or this history of doing this thing let's make an educated guess let's take the data that we get and, and let's kind of make these these iterations forward and backwards until we can you know triangulate what's best for you um can i can i jump in here super yeah. quick just because i think this is this is important i keep saying this what we want to know is the nature of the relationship because that informs the changes so if someone is not progressing well in a in and um there's a potential culprit you know what variables to modulate as a result of that you know whether going training closer to failure for your competition squatting sets whether that's actually based on the nature of the relationship going to lead to better strength gains or is volume a more potent variable for strength gains or is it the peak loading is it the average loading is it how many times per week you're doing the competition squat versus a close variation so if we understand the nature of the relationship that informs the changes which as we've all kind of agreed are the most important thing so it's all about the nature of that relationship to inform the troubleshooting because that's going to lead to the most efficient individualization process i think you're making i think you're making a great point would you also say though that just knowing the the nature of the relationship doesn't automatically tell you the directionality because you might not exactly know where the person is on let's say you, someone's not progressing like you might not you might have a hunch educated guess that adding a set is a good idea you might have there might be a part of you that thinks okay again intuitively if someone's on the you know somewhat objective low end of volume you might say okay i have it's a higher likelihood that more sets will help if someone's on the really high end of the spectrum, not recovering, not progressing, you might have a hunch that lowering volume, but like you're saying, understanding the relationship, but the inherent nature of the relationship isn't linear. So it, 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 it it's enough to make an educated guess and understand. I'm not saying that what you said is not true. It's hundred percent true. I'm just saying like, yeah. if something's not working, yes, you need to have an understanding of that relationship, but it's still a smidge of, of educated right. guess trial and error because you might have someone in a moderate volume range think that you got to go up in volume and that leads to a worse outcome. But that again is, is you kind of your machine learning your client as to like directionally where they perform the best. This, this is where I think it's massive to kind of rely on the collective anecdotes of coaches. So this is uh, try to stay with me with this analogy. We'll see if it works. It's not calories again. No. So let's say you're using a tool and you're trying to what's a good example um let's you know like when a when a screw strips like when you're trying to screw a screw and it strips and it no longer will grab there's a sensation associated with that when you're using a tool and you really can only know that after you've used that tool enough to know what it feels like if i rotated the tool that i used every single day and that just randomly happened i would lose familiarity with that sensation and know what it feels like the reason I, I think that's relevant is because this is where I'm pretty big on, like there's no real right metrics or right things to track, but gaining familiarity with a very consistent set of tools allows you to get 
an informative process that you systematically change things that a coach over time, which ultimately benefits that and becomes less and less troubleshooting because you're able to identify patterns between people. You're no longer saying 10 sets per week is the best for everybody. You're saying I've repeatedly seen across individuals when this sensation is reported and progress is not satisfactory, this change gets us headed in the right direction again. And that to me is basically whether that's identified through conversations with a client is one of my favorite ways, not super fancy, but it usually works. Whether that's through ratings of subjective fatigue or subjective satisfaction with training, whether that's training progression itself, there's tons of different ways you can track those things, like actually mathematically track them, but there's also hundreds of different variables you can use as a proxy for those sensations. I think that's kind of irrelevant. Like, I don't really think there's a necessarily a best one there, but if a coach consistently utilizes something and gets very familiar with the trends you see, when progress stalls or you're no longer seeing satisfactory progression, you can use your data bank that you've seen through all your different clients when they reach a point of stagnation and they report these other things, which direction should I go? And then if we combine all the different, you know, coaches and their observations, I think it, I think most people would agree that we can kind of identify which direction we should go with when, when progress is no longer satisfactory. Now, can we say that with hundred percent certainty in this very specific case before us right now? Obviously not, but I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit better than a pure blind shot in the dark. I think we should be a little bit more, um, gracious with the kind of the observations I think a lot of coaches have had, if that makes sense. Agreed. I'd be curious to know what some of those proxies might be for is this working and what might be some of the things that you guys see? I mean, dovetailing right off what you said of like, what are some of the things that you can even just do, use a potential client archetype scenario of like, Hey, this is sometimes what I see. And these are some of the things I look at. And these are some of the things I might change based on that. If you guys have an experience with a client recently where you're like, Hey, we saw this and that gave me an inkling of maybe it was too much and, or this gave me an inkling of maybe it was too little. I'm putting you on the spot with a, with a hypothetical example here. You want to let it rip Zach? You want me to give it a shot? You can go for it if you got some. I have a, I have a recent example of when I've missed a lot, despite feeling like I have some degree of intuition um, regarding the stuff of like, okay, things aren't going the way we want them to. So I have some inclination. This should be the adjustment. And specifically, we, we've kind of alluded to bench press before. That one seems to be the most kind of sensitive to the overall dosage. So some people just need a lot of bench volume to progress it. And I suspected this with a specific client who just finished up his block a week from a week, like seven days ago, right? Last Friday. And I just cannot get his bench to progress, even though I was adding volume. Um, and I, I, I asked Zach specifically about this individual. I was like, man, what, what do you think I should do? Like, it just will not budge. I'm, I'm, uh, like I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to some degree and Zach's kind of personal experience. And he, he's a good reminder for me to be a little bit more extreme at times when it's, it's justified. So for this individual, we had worked up to like 24, 25 sets of bench per week, which, which is a very high, but I wouldn't classify it as extreme. And I wasn't seeing that bench press budge. And he encouraged me to do this kind of like profiling approach where we kind of simplify his bench press training a ton. And we, we kind of pull back to start. And then we add a little bit of volume each week to some degree, either until he PRs or until he is like, yeah, something isn't feeling good or just soreness is through the roof. And every single week, 
feel good, no fatigue. Performance is not interrupted at all. And we got up to the mid thirties for bench press sets, which is the most I've ever prescribed for someone. So it was like 36 sets per week by the end. And he hit a five kilo PR within six weeks. And that was like the best, you know, within walk progress we had seen on the bench press. So that's an example of like, my intuition was right that he probably needed more volume because I've seen that many times before, you know, the, the way he was kind of talking about, uh, like fatigue and he was reporting his aches and pains kind of indicate, okay, he probably, and just his archetype of the way he bench presses and his body size as well, um, indicated, okay, it's probably going to be a high volume venture kept going that way. And it just turns out I should have even leaned into that even more. Um, so that's, that's a recent example that is very fresh in mind because that literally happened a week ago. I, I, I am curious about this. So See, this is this is a perfect example to me where like that 10 to 20 set thing can almost bias your decision making in the wrong direction. Because if you were to write down, it sounds like Josh, if you were to write down his his uh fatigue, all those kind of things, like those quote unquote best proxies of like, is the person tolerating the training well? Um, at the, like the 25 set mark, you would have been totally fine. It sounds like, right? Yeah. And so it it it's one of those things where obviously the context here is very important. We're not talking about somebody training for hypertrophy. Not every single one of these sets is like 10 reps, to one RAR power yeah, lifter. Most were three to five RARs. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of low rep sets, stuff like that. So that's important to keep in mind with the actual numbers. But the point is your intuition is sometimes I think something to be trusted, particularly when you've been with somebody for a very long time, you know, their training trends, you know, that they're recovering well, but if you purely let yourself be biased by that 10 to 20 set range, it can literally prevent you from moving in the right direction that otherwise just purely based on all the other factors that Josh is from his extensive coaching experience knows kind of can indicate which direction to go with the dose. You would have just kept going up and probably would have got to that point a little bit faster, but it's, it's, it's tough because it, I've had the same thing many of times where intuition tells you to do that, but you're like, oh, that's a lot of volume. I don't know. And the and equally in the opposite direction, man, that's not very much. I don't know if they're going to progress, but it happens just as many times. I have a couple of clients where, you know, one set of squats per week leads to progress and no volume meta analysis is going to suggest that. Like it just, um, you know, it, it really is one of those things where it's going to be tough, but um, yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool example. I like that. Yeah. Again, just, just to echo that, man, like I, I have other guys on bench press where it's like 1.5 times per week, two sets in one session, one set in the other bigger guys, typically objectively stronger, um, training age, typically a lot higher. Again, we have three sets per week compared to 36 sets per week. Like that, that maybe that should be our starting point range. Um, well, opt optimal's right <laughs> in the middle, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> So yeah, it's probably a good place to wrap up, but I thought that was that was a good kind of extreme example to show the importance of this this individualization process. Yeah, and I've had I've had similar experiences. How I, I, I we had a couple minutes, and I appreciate that that you guys are keeping an eye out. Um, do you guys find that uh, you guys will do quite a bit of a a relative intensity audit prior to like I would gently phrase very gently that set increases are my are a last resort. And I, it makes it sound like you would never do it, but I think factually, I would keep it as a last resort. I would do a quality audit first, I suppose, you know, whether it's like a, what does the lift look like and exercise execution and, and proximity to failure, probably most importantly, range of motion or make sure all those things are checked out. Is that something that you guys are like, would, would not along with, or like, I just feel 
I feel like there's there's that's something that I would subscribe to. I'm trying to shit test my own that that sentence myself, and I'm like, is there a time where I wouldn't do that? There probably isn't a time I wouldn't do that. I come across that quite often, and and in the same way that um, Josh has this guy who's like fucking benching 36. I have one guy who's a similar height, weight, age, training age, muscle mass level as I am, training six days a week. And when he first came to me, he was training six days a week. And I was like, he's training like a little bitch. I'm like, this guy is nowhere near failure doing like fucking like a bunch of isolation, single joint stuff, short position stuff. And I'm like, he's going to fucking die. I'm like, he's going to die if I give him like my six days of training, let's say. And, and he was like, no, I can do it. I can do it. And there was a little trial and error. And I just remember like I reduced the volume per session volume a little bit just to like say, hey, let's let's come down 20%. Let me really help you dial in if if it isn't dialed in your RIR all of that stuff and then if we if you're recovering let's go let's build up and it has reshaped my thoughts and really reminded me to like take this on an individual basis because this guy's doing I can't I can't survive half of his workout I can't I wouldn't survive it and that might be my inclination to train a little bit closer to failure than he might um, but, but still, and again, that goes back to like the interplay between these variables and also a personal preference, uh, layer. And so, yeah, I appreciate that. I hate the fucking phrase, the art of coaching. I hate that. So it literally like burns my eardrums, but that's certainly kind of what we're talking about here is like application. I mean, guidelines are one thing, but application on an individual basis, like is what it is should be on an indiv- individual basis. All right. Anything else you guys want to say before we wrap up? I would love for you guys to drop where people can find you. You had mentioned a newsletter, uh, Josh, before, and I read that newsletter on this topic. I thought it was excellent. You guys are doing a good job of the newsletter. So let me know um, where people can find that, and I'll, I'll throw it in the show notes and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks, man. It was a, it was a really good chat. I know Zach's going to be talking about this calorie analogy for yeah, at least you're two weeks. Oh, dude, <laughs> I'm all about <laughs> it, man. Dude, I love this. So, so thanks for that, Jordan. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can you can subscribe to the newsletter. That's probably the best way to keep up with, with what we're doing. Uh, go to data-drivenstrength.com forward slash newsletter, and you can sign up right there and also check out the the previous issues as well. You can also follow us on social media. I'm josh.datadrivenstrength, and Zach is the same thing, but zach.datadrivenstrength. Um, and yeah, that, that should be sufficient, but yeah, man, really good chat. And we appreciate you having us on. Yeah. Genuinely, Jordan. Thank you. I, uh, I'm going to definitely, uh, sit more on this analogy. I think it's got more layers even. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, it goes deep, but it goes too deep. And I'm, I apologize to Josh in advance no, for that. Like so, yeah, it, yeah. 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 Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate your time. No, Thanks. Thank you, dude. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.